Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The United States is in the midst of an opioid crisis driven largely by the greed and deceptive marketing practices of large industrial corporations. However, it might shock most of us to know that the U.S., along with Britain and other Western nations, triggered an opioid crisis in China that lasted for more than a century. In his book, Smoke and Ashes, Opium's Hidden Histories, Renowned writer Amitav Ghosh explores the history of the opium trade and its relationship to the present-day opioid crisis. Even just sitting here right now, I can feel in the right side of my spine right now. I'm having a really bad spasm. Then it feels just like it, like you're taking stretching and it's gonna break at any moment. Every day brings another story about the depth of this country's opioid crisis. Overdoses up, emergency services overwhelmed, another family burying a loved one. The Opium Wars were a series of conflicts fought over the lucrative drug trade in mainland China during the 19th century. Despite having greater numbers, China would struggle against the technologically superior British who were determined to protect their colonial interests. The Supreme Court putting the bankruptcy reorganization of Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, on hold. That's after the Biden administration objected to a part of this deal that protected the Sackler family that controls the company from liability. Hello, I'm Amitabh Ghosh. I'm a writer, mainly of fiction. I've written many novels. But of late, I've also been writing a lot about the climate crisis, the environmental crisis, and issues of that kind. So, sorry, not sorry, those are my interests. Amitav, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Welcome to Sorry, Not Sorry. Would you just start by telling our listeners a bit about you and the work that you do? In the first place, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, It's a real pleasure. I've watched you on the screen many times, and it's amazing to be talking in this way. I'm a writer of fiction, mainly. I've been writing novels for over 35 years. Many of my novels are historical novels, so I've always had to do a lot of research for them. Many of my novels have environmental themes, and that in turn has made me engage very strongly in the last 10 years with issues of the environment, of climate change, and more generally speaking, about the planetary catastrophe that we are now living through, because it is really a multidimensional crisis, you know, including biodiversity loss and a great many other things. These issues have really consumed me for many years. And then you became interested about the history of the opium trade. How did you become interested in writing about the history of the opium trade? Well, way back in 2005, I thought I would write a novel, a sort of historical novel, about the Indian indenture. So let me give you a little background on that. In the 1830s, after the banning of slavery in the British Empire, slave labor was essentially replaced 
by indentured labor brought mainly from India and from one particular part of India. And I became very interested in these stories because I happen to be from that part of India myself. So I started doing the research for this. And the research led me to something very strange and interesting, which is that I discovered that the reason why so many people were leaving this part of India was precisely because they had been forced to create this monoculture of opium by the British colonial authorities. What the British Empire in India was actually doing was that it was taking this opium from India, which was produced as a British monopoly. They were taking it to China and selling it to China in ever greater quantities, creating this enormous epidemic of addiction in China. And this ultimately led to the Opium War of 1840-42, when essentially Britain forced China to keep on uh, importing opium. So I became very interested in the story because even though I'd been studying Indian history for a long time, I knew very little about this particular facet of Indian history. I am from the Boston area originally, and part of the great mythos of that city is the Boston Tea Party, where citizens banded together in the colonial era and threw British tea into the harbor. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the relationship between the tea trade and the conflict between Britain and the United States at the end of the 18th century, and the opium trade that sort of developed out of that? Uh, That's a very interesting uh, connection, really, because the precursor to opium was tea. From the late 17th century onwards, the British began to import large quantities of Chinese tea, and they imposed taxes on this tea. And these taxes were very high, sometimes as much as 100% of the value whereas the Chinese only charged 10%. So in fact, the British Empire was making more money from tea than China was. So the taxes on tea, which was a monopoly again, a monopoly of the East India Company, was bringing in enormous revenues for Britain. In fact, it was the second highest source of revenue after land revenue. So Britain very tightly controlled this trade, which led to two things. One is that round about the mid-18th century, the British found it harder and harder to find anything to trade to the Chinese other than silver. The Chinese didn't really need any British-produced goods, and they wouldn't accept them. They would only take silver bullion. And around about the mid-18th century, silver bullion, uh, you know, the supply of silver bullion began to dry up. So then the British had to find some alternative commodity to trade with China. And before this time, There was a small trade in medicinal opium with China. That opium came from India. It was a very small trade, but the British decided to expand this trade. And they knew that it could be expanded because the Dutch had previously done something similar in the Dutch East Indies. In a very short period, they had increased the demand for opium 20-fold because opium is one of those substances in which It's not demand that creates supply, it's supply that creates demand. The more opium that was sent to China, the faster the market grew. And this was one of the reasons for the huge expansion in opium production in India. Now, this also had another corollary. The British, because they controlled the tea trade very tightly, they wouldn't allow Americans to trade directly with China. Americans had to accept that the East India Company had a complete monopoly of the China trade. And of course, this led to enormous resentment in America, and ultimately it led to the Boston Tea Party. December 16th. 
1773, Boston Harbor. By the end of the night, 342 chests of tea would be dumped into the harbor. Known as the Boston Tea Party, this event was a protest against taxation and British mercantilism. In some ways, the event had been brewing for 10 years. Following the end of the French and Indian War, Britain wanted to tax the colonies and regain some of the money that had been spent for their protection. Where tea was dumped in the sea because people didn't want to pay these very high markups on tea. So in a very strange way, the tea was the commodity that opened the way to the introduction of large-scale opium trading in China. And this also had a very major impact on the American economy because after 1783, America found itself in this very odd situation, or I should say the United States found itself in a very odd situation. It was a fledgling economy, and suddenly it couldn't trade with its neighbors, which were all British colonies. So at this point, people realized that China was essential to the survival of the American economy. Actually, as early as 1783, a ship called the Empress of China set off from New York to go to Guangzhou, and it made excellent returns. So for the next couple of decades, Americans sent many ships to China. But again, they met the same problem that the British had, which is that they couldn't find enough goods to trade with China. At first, there was furs, and John Jacob Astor made all his money in furs. And then he started trading with China. In fact, he set up the first major settlement on the northwest coast of the United States and called it Astoria, in fact, and that was intended to be an outpost for trading with China. Then many other Americans got involved in the China trade, and eventually they found themselves in a situation where they too had to resort to opium to continue to trade with China. And American traders were extremely inventive. They found a new source of opium in Turkey, and they started taking this opium into China. Later, they expanded into India and began to carry large quantities of opium from India to China. This entire trade, by the way, was completely clandestine because the Chinese had banned opium trading as far back as 1729. So it was a completely criminal enterprise. But many Americans grew extremely rich from opium. And actually, most of those Americans were from Boston. In fact, the biggest opium trading concern in America was called the Boston Concern. That somehow seems very fitting. So one of the things that you write about is the way that the British and the Americans tried to absolve themselves of the blame of the effects of the opioid trade, the opium trade in China, primarily by blaming the Chinese, saying this is just their demand, this is what they want. And I'm wondering how that came to pass and how did anyone even come to believe them when they said that? Yes, it's actually an astonishing thing because actually until Europeans started carrying opium to China or in a large scale, there was no opium problem in China. Very few people in China smoked opium. It was an introduction from European colonies in Southeast Asia and India. For the Chinese, the appeal of opium lay precisely in the fact that it was foreign, that it was not Chinese. 
Yet, Europeans created this great myth that Orientals, as they call them, were by nature profligate and uh, degenerate, and they needed drugs because their very constitution depended upon opium, completely forgetting that they had lasted for thousands of years without opium. But they created this myth. Then they claimed that the opium trade was entirely a product of demand from China, neglecting to accept that actually with addictive substances, it's supply that creates demand. And it's very interesting to see how these patterns are repeated over time. For example, when the Sackler family introduced OxyContin, you know, again, similarly, they created an enormous demand for OxyContin by targeting very specifically parts of the United States where people, they were impoverished, they worked at jobs, which caused them a great deal of pain, like mining, and they started marketing opium over there. And then they just said, it's not our fault, it's the demand. If we don't meet that demand, someone else will. So they just washed their hands of their responsibility in that way. You were raised in Calcutta, as you mentioned before, in India. And India, of course, was colonized and occupied by the British. The U.S. as a nation, not as a land or as a people, as British colonies, also had been a colonizer itself, right? Britain sold Indian opium to China. Can you just talk about the role of colonialism in the Chinese opioid crisis? Oh, colonialism was absolutely fundamental to it. Colonialism is a system of acquiring and practicing complete or partial political control over another country. It is done with the purpose of exploiting countries' resources economically. It is a process in which one country subjugates a dependent or a less developed nation and practices power over that nation for the sake of their own benefit. Because the British were growing opium in India under the auspices of their Indian colonies and their control uh, of those areas where opium was actually grown. And they profited hugely from it. So the opium trade was entirely a phenomenon of colonialism. But it wasn't just in relation to India. Britain created this whole sort of chain of ports in the Indian Ocean region, which essentially subsisted on taxing opium. So Bombay, which is now a megalopolis, in its early years, it was sustained uh, by the opium trade. Singapore, for example, it was founded in 1819. And again, Singapore was able to subsist as a free port simply because it taxed opium. It lived off its opium revenues. Hong Kong, which was founded in 1842 after the first opium war, similarly was a great center for the distribution of opium. All of this was done because the British Empire had control of these regions. It was completely an artifact of colonialism. Do you think that carries through today in the way that we see, it's not exactly colonialism, but you see some of those like wealth and power dynamics in the way the opioid crisis continues to be perpetrated, right? Where we see very wealthy, very powerful people controlling the supply of opioids to people perhaps with less wealth, less power. Is that an extension of colonialism or do you think it's some other social dynamic that comes into that? There are parallels with colonialism. There are certainly parallels with colonialism. It's certainly true that Purdue Pharma, for example, targeted poor parts of the country for the marketing of opium. And this had devastating effects, especially in Appalachia, where very large parts of the population became addicted. And not only does the circulation of opium create these cycles of addiction, 
it also has other absolutely devastating effects in society. Children start stealing from their parents. This breaks up the family. Doctors become corrupted. Pharmacists, all these are very trusted figures. They become corrupted. So it creates an atmosphere of uh, corruption and venality. And sadly, that's what happened in America, in many parts of America in this period from the 1993 onwards. And actually, opioid overdose deaths are only going up. People thought that they would peak during the COVID pandemic, but that hasn't proved to be the case. They're still increasing. In a very short period, in a few years, more Americans died of opioid overdoses than were killed in the entire Second World War. I mean, this is a really shocking thing. And this went unnoticed, completely unnoticed. So what basically happened is that really the Sackler family targeted people they thought were expendable. During the colonial period, this was very racially coded. Uh, those Bostonians who made a lot of money from carrying opium to China basically shrugged it off because they said it's a different race. That's a degenerate race. Today, because a lot of the victims of the opioid crisis are actually white, uh, it's not racially coded in exactly the same way, but it's much more coded by class, I would say. I actually wrote about that dynamic specifically in comparing it to gun violence, where I saw that the opioid crisis was observed as a crisis that primarily affected white people. And while certainly part of a criminal justice operation was also largely treated as a health crisis for a lot of people, at least where I was in Massachusetts. And um, gun violence, by contrast, disproportionately affected people of color and was primarily treated as a criminal justice enterprise. And I think that very much impacts how we view and interact those. Yeah. I mean, as I'm hearing you talk about it. We were talking about the 18th century. A giant corporation marketed a highly addictive drug to a largely poor group of people inside a large nation, right? Sounds exactly like what the American opioid crisis looks like today. Do you think that is by design? Like, how do you think the parallels became so fossilized? What Purdue Pharma did is actually in some ways rather unprecedented because in general, with opioids, there's a pattern that opioid use tends to be adopted by elites, and then slowly, you know, it percolates down to working class people. That's what happened in China in the 18th and 19th centuries. Smoking opium became a sign of sophistication amongst the literati and so on, and then it very quickly percolated downwards. In a sense, the same thing happened also here, because there was a sense of glamour around heroin use, for example. That's what attracted many of the jazz greats to heroin, also many writers and, you know, other important cultural figures. So there was a kind of aestheticization, if you like, of heroin, which is a very common feature that occurs. But again, it's true. It is also true that in China, it was doctors played a very major part in the spread of opium in the 19th century, because opium is a miraculous substance. It does all sorts of incredible things. All of us have taken opium in our lives because if you've ever had Imodium, for example, the active ingredient is an opioid. Similarly, if you've ever had an operation, you probably had an anesthetic, which was an opioid. After serious injuries, many patients are prescribed medicines for pain. Some of these medicines belong to a class we call opioids. Let me tell you a little bit more about what opioids are. 
Opioids work in the brain to produce a variety of effects, including pain relief. They are a class of drugs that share the main ingredient, opium, which is naturally found in the poppy plant, or other chemicals that work the same way but have been manufactured in a lab. Some opioids are available legally by prescription, such as oxycodone or oxycontin, hydrocodone, Vicodin, codeine, morphine, and many others. Opioids can be prescribed for patients who may experience moderate to severe pain from injuries, surgeries, and other medical problems. It was easy for Chinese doctors in the 19th century to concoct various tonics and so on out of opium. And this helped create this incredible addiction crisis. What is similar in the case of Purdue Pharma, again, is that they actively targeted a very poor segment of the population. And they targeted doctors and pharmacists who were also vulnerable in the sense that being in those areas, they weren't really making lots of money. There's a lot of documentation about this. I'm sure you've seen several television serials about it. It's a horrifying and heartbreaking story. But when we see those serials, we have to remember that the Chinese lived through something exactly similar in the 19th century. But they dealt with the crisis substantially differently than the United States. What are some of those differences? Well, the Chinese crisis, you have to remember, persisted over a hundred years because the British and other European governments essentially wouldn't let the Chinese deal with the crisis at all. They intervened. There was the first opium war when they forced the Chinese to carry on importing opium. And then there was the second opium war when they opened up China even more. And essentially, they forced China to legalize the opium trade. And the Chinese ultimately gave in. And despite a lot of opposition from the ruling elite, they did legalize opium. But what happened then, I mean, often legalization is presented as a kind of a cure for drug epidemics. But what happened in China was exactly the opposite. The use of opium just absolutely shut up. The planting of opium absolutely shut up. So that by the end of the 19th century, China became one of the biggest opium producers in the world. Actually, it was the biggest opium producer in the world. I think nine-tenths of the world's opium by the 1900 was coming from China. So in 1908, when it became clear that legalization had been a disaster, the Qing emperor recriminalized opium in order to put a stop to the trade. By that time, many voluntary groups, NGOs, women's groups, etc., had become very active in opposing opium, in opposing opium addiction. In 1908, they managed to actually stop, ban the trade. And from then on, because of a lot of activism within civil society, the use of opium began to decline, even though it continued until the 1950s, when, in fact, the Communist Party, by that time, China had a revolution that put the communists in power. And it was ultimately the communists uh, who stopped the circulation of opium. But it's important to remember that opium was also stopped in what is now Indonesia. Indonesia had a massive opioid problem. But there again, it was brought to an end. It was brought to an end in Singapore. It was brought substantially to an end in India in the 1950s and 1960s. And all of this happened because actually resistance to opium became a very major part of the decolonization struggles that were then erupting across Asia. And it was in the context of that kind of ideological fervor that really the use of opium declined. Now, as far as the United States is concerned, it's very hard to see. I mean, I'm not a policy expert. I can't speak to policy aspects of this question. But this is perfectly clear that 
no one has a solution to this problem. And the increase in opioid use and the use of cocaineoids is rising very fast all across the collective West. I was just in Britain for the release of the book, and I did a panel with some experts. And they told me that really now it's become when young people go to the pub on the weekend, it's not about beer. It's about beer and cocaine. It's become completely ritualized, as it were. You know, you talk a little bit about the war on drugs. So Nixon famously started this. We had the war on drugs that built up through the 1980s. We saw it play out in the Latin American countries, primarily on the coconut drugs, while the opioids had a different status. And now I think, you know, what we're seeing in recreational drug use is that synthetic opioids and these coconut drugs, cocaine in particular, are merging together. We're seeing almost all of the cocaine in the United States being laced with fentanyl. And so I just wonder, A, how that sort of differentiation plays between the two states of drugs, and also what the role of the war on drugs is in enabling that to happen. The war on drugs was a disaster. It was an unmitigated disaster. I mean, it led to these attacks on many of these countries. It led to an absolutely futile attempt to suppress what I call grassroots psychoactives. People who work at higher altitudes in the Andes, they need coca leaves. Coca leaves make it possible, in fact, to continue working in those areas. I think one of the prime misunderstandings of the war on drugs is this very idea of drugs itself. Under this label, they included many substances that are actually now known to have many beneficial uses, like psilocybin, mushrooms, marijuana, most of all, you know, has been in use for thousands of years. It does many things. The plant itself has incredible number of uses. It can be used to make rope. It absorbs carbon at fantastic levels and so on. Hemp itself is a very remarkable plant. Uh, to try and suppress it is crazy because it's a very vigorous plant that grows wild, really, in many parts of the world. But what would be the point of suppressing it? I don't know. It was a kind of puritanism which arose out of a fear of all psychoactive substances. And this is the basis of the problem because actually human beings have always used uh, psychoactive substances. Archaeologists have suspected for a very long time that people across the globe have been taking hallucinogenic drugs for thousands of years, and in some places in the world, they have been able to confirm this. But this was never the case in Europe until now. There's a cave in Menorca, which is, you know, a Spanish island in the Mediterranean Sea, where in 1995, archaeologists discovered more than 200 intact burials of male and female adults and children, dating back to between 1600 and 800 BCE. Among the burials, the researchers found hollow sealed tubes made of wood and antler, and these hollow tubes contained strands of hair from some people buried in the cave. This hair was cut and dyed with red pigment. Further into the cave, far from the burials, researchers discovered 10 more hair-containing tubes. And now, 28 years after its initial discovery, these tubes have been analyzed, and they revealed the use of psychoactive drugs by these ancient Bronze Age people. In the collective West, the psychoactive substance of choice was alcohol. And that kept the use of other kinds of drugs down, if anything. In other parts of the world, before Europeans arrived in the Americas, Native Americans used over a 100 kinds of plants as psychoactives. 
I think it was the indiscriminate nature of the war on drugs that is in one part responsible. But I think you also have to remember that, in fact, American agencies also used the drug trade quite instrumentally. For example, in the Vietnam War, in dealing with inner city populations often. I think they just couldn't figure out how to monetize it. Yeah, that's probably right. And it cured or helped with too many issues. And so they were like, you know what? The pharmaceutical companies were like, we got to ban marijuana because it takes away pain and we have Advil that we have to sell. That's right. Michael Pollan had some things to say about MDMA and how it was accidentally discovered by, I think it was Merck, a drug company, and then left to sit on the shelf, right? Because it didn't quite fit. So I think these substances, the whole scheme of it is so just bizarre to me. I don't think that I'll ever fully comprehend it. But one of the things that you grapple with in the book that I think is really interesting is the way that the influence of China is perceived differently than perhaps the influence of Western countries. And you talk about through you, how you perceived it, but I think that it translates into the rest of us, is that you saw concepts of the West being things like progress or development, these big sort of terms, whereas the Chinese influence, I think you actually said something, I'm going to paraphrase you here, but it was through the items that were on your desktop in Calcutta or in Brooklyn, right? There were these small physical things. And I wonder if you might want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, certainly. Growing up in India, China was completely absent from my life, from my imaginative life, really. Even though I always loved to travel, I had no interest in China. If anything, within India, when I was growing up, there was a general air of extreme rancor and hostility towards China, because India had fought a war with China in 1962, in which it had actually been quite humiliated. And those scars linger to this day. I had never been sort of interested in China until I started writing these books. And then I discovered this whole connection. I had this moment of epiphany for one day when I was back in my study in Calcutta. And I suddenly looked around me and realized that tea, for example, which I'm addicted to, I drink tea all day long, but tea is Chinese. And even the Bengali word and the Hindi word for tea comes from Chinese words. Everything to do with tea uh, comes from China. The cups, the saucers, all of this. The sugar in India used to come from China. It's actually called, uh, the word for sugar in many Indian languages is just chini, which means Chinese. But then when you start looking at the influence of China on the visual landscape, not just of India, but of the entire world, China's had an enormous influence. In the early 19th century, it's thought that people who live along the seaboard, the eastern seaboard or the big port cities, a substantial part of their household goods were actually made in China. You know, utensils and uh, porcelain of various kinds, because the Chinese were able to produce this at an incredibly low cost. So China's had this influence on many aspects of our lives. Half the garden plants in the West actually come from China. Everyone knows peonies are Chinese, but Wisteria comes from China. When I walk around Brooklyn, you know, in May, June, it's just wisteria everywhere. 
almost every American garden has hydrangeas and hostas and many other plants that come from China. You know, the influence that China has had on our visual landscape is actually quite astonishing. The British garden, for example, which is after all the parent of the American garden, was really developed under Chinese influences. And this is now quite well known and acknowledged. One of the things that surprised me the most to learn was how the actual relationship between China and the West has in some ways flipped position. For example, we think of China as a nation that benefits from digital piracy now, right? Stealing patented or copyrighted properties from the West. But the West actually started pirating inventions from China a long time ago. Tell us a bit about that. Absolutely. So many Western industries uh, really uh, had their origins in China. Paper, for example, or if you consider gunpowder is the other big one, of course. But then so much else. Porcelain, the whole technology of porcelain was invented in China. And Europeans devoted a lot of effort to copying this technology. Tea, the biggest element in 19th century trade, 18th and 19th century trade, tea, was eventually stolen by the British and reproduced everywhere in the colonies, in India, in Africa, and so on. And tea was absolutely essential to the British economy. So many of these technologies were literally stolen by the West. Our story begins back in ancient China in the mid-9th century, where early Chinese alchemists were trying to create a potion for immortality. Instead, what they created was a flammable powder that burned down many of their homes. They quickly realized that this black powder, which they called fire medicine, was precisely the opposite of something that would make you live forever. It's an extraordinary irony that today you see these fingers being pointed towards China, which is not to say that I think technologies should be stolen, but there should be some awareness of the history. So was there anything when you were writing or doing the research for this book that surprised you to discover? Oh, yes. All of it was a surprise. <laughs> I had no idea of any of this. Uh, it was a kind of discovery of the self, uh, of my acculturated self. It was a kind of a discovery of the genealogies of the self. It was completely unexpected, all of it. I want to go back to the beginning of the interview when you mentioned climate change was such an important part, such an important theme in your work. You write both fiction and nonfiction, and characters and themes are very much engaged with climate change. Why is it so important? Why you feel like writing about climate change is so important? You know, we tend to think of climate change as a very new phenomenon, as something which uh, we become aware of only in the last few years. And usually when we think about climate change, we think about the future. I see it very differently. I see climate change as being rooted in a set of historical developments. And a part of those historical developments is related to commodities, commodity trades of various kinds. So one of my books is actually called The Nutmeg's Curse, and it's about how commodities of many kinds have brought a resource curse upon the people who produce those commodities. The people who produce nutmegs, for example, they were in a tiny archipelago called the Banda Island. They were ultimately exterminated by the Dutch, who took control of the nutmeg at a certain point. 
So it's an incredibly sad story. These islanders who had this beautiful archipelago and they became rich and prosperous and suddenly one day because of their precious commodity, which was their tree of life, they're just murdered, exterminated, driven out of their islands. You know, in a sense, I think of climate change as the globalization of the resource curse. It's the hunger for resources. It's the hunger for extraction, the drive to extraction that's driving climate change. And in fact, this extractivism is always expanding. And I think opium is very much a part of the same story because it's curious how opium, which was after all in the 19th century sponsored by the most powerful entities on the planet, which is to say the British Empire, the French Empire, the Dutch Empire, and so on, became, came to be ultimately curbed by popular action. This huge anti-opium movement emerges around the world. And it's ultimately able to force these empires to come to the table. Now, I think something similar could happen in relation to climate change. We have these climate movements everywhere in the world now. And I think it's perfectly possible that if they were to join hands, they could make a substantial difference to the use of fossil fuels. Extractivism now is very largely centered on fossil fuels. And that's where the problem lies. So I think there are some hopeful aspects to the story. I read your novel Gun Island when I was in graduate school, as we're talking about some of your climate-focused work. And one of the things that grad students, including myself, tend to do is we miss kind of a surface story and we're always digging for something that's beneath the surface. And I just have to ask you about one of these things that I did, because you have this character, Cinta, in the novel. And this is just a question for the writers out there, because this character serves so many functions in the novel. She's kind of a thinker. She acts as a protector. She's like a central figure of calm in the novel when like chaos is swirling around her. And as I was reading this and sort of digging into it, I discovered that her name translates in a lot of the languages, which appear in countries in the book, have meanings that are relevant to her character. And I'm curious if you did that on purpose or if it just happened and it's one of those weird coincidences that that sometimes happens when we write. It was not a weird coincidence. Oh, great. I'm so glad to find that because I uh, actually wrote about it for a short paper that I did and people were telling me I was crazy. So I'm pretty glad to hear that I wasn't. No, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, the name is actually Cinta because in Italian, a C that precedes an I is pronounced as a ch, and Cinta in Indian languages, that just means thought. Sure. There's an Italian translation that makes sense, and there's a Sanskrit translation, and there's a Greek translation, and all of these sort of come into this character who I really enjoyed that part of digging into her. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I love that. Amitav, what gives you hope? Many things give me hope. I don't think that we're in a world that's all gloom and doom. It's certainly true that I think we're in a crisis of unprecedented proportions and that things look as though they're only going to get worse. But at the same time, you know, many of us, because of the crises that we're in, have rediscovered the pleasures of friendships and families and all the things that really matter. I don't feel, in a personal sense, I don't feel despondent at all. Well, you give us hope. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for all you do. And thank you very much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. What the Sackers have always been really, really good at is selling a highly addictive drug 
often a deadly drug in the case of Oxycontin. And they've been really, really good at getting doctors to prescribe this addictive drug for an enormous universe of patients. The Sacklers lied about how addictive the drug was in order to convince doctors and patients that it wasn't dangerous. The Sacklers, what they really wanted to do is they wanted to get rid of this fear of opioids. They called it opiophobia, and then they called the addiction threat pseudo-addiction. And they were actually very effective at getting people to kind of break down their fear over what opioids could do. Of course, as it turns out, those fears were really, really well-founded. And what we now know, after a couple studies have been done, people ask, okay, well, how important were the Sacklers really? This was one company, didn't other pharmaceutical companies get involved? And it's really important to understand that Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers built this market. We reap what we sow. We have seen the lessons of capitalism run amok time and time again, and those consequences are devastating, but rarely for the people who cause the problems. Rather, the consequences of corporate greed and failure to regulate and police giant industries almost always fall on the poor and the disenfranchised, the people who have the least capacity to weather crises. We should learn the lessons of our failures, most importantly to keep them from happening again, but also place the blame and the consequences where they belong. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.